So you see a video of the destruction in Texas and Puerto Rico and just the other things that are going on around us in life. Um, and the first thing, you know, a lot of the, the, the questions we have, sometimes we come to a place where we say, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, do, why does this happen to bad, pe you know, good people? And, and the other side of the coin is, why does it seem that sometimes that the real bad people seem to be doing okay or seem to be doing better? They don't seem to get hit with the, the problems that good people do. Um, probably these are two of the questions that many people struggle with. And people who, who would say, you know, I, I, uh, there was a time where I kind of had faith in God, but then I look at the world around me, I saw that, that good people were suffering, and that if God loves good people, they shouldn't suffer. And I saw bad people who were prospering. So therefore, I just kind of said, there is no God. And those two questions are, are huge questions that people struggle with. Well, guess what? The psalmist struggled with those questions. In fact, we're going to look at Psalm 73 uh, this weekend. And the psalmist in this, uh, who writes this psalm, basically is struggling with that, that, those questions. In other words, he's asking this question. Why is it that when I look around and I see the wicked, they seem to be prospering? And why is it that when I look around, those people who are trying to live good lives before you are suffering? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like you care. What's going on? And, and so that's kind of the struggle that you'll see in the psalm that we're going to look at. So if you'd like to, I'd love to have you follow along with me. We're going to be in Psalm 73. And let me read the first couple of verses of Psalm 73. This is what the writer of uh, the psalm says. This is God's word. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. So the psalmist is going to go on and he's going to say, I began to see bad people who were prospering. I, I began to see good people who were suffering. And I began to say, is it worth it to live a good, moral, decent life before God? Is it really worth it? Because it doesn't seem from my observation that it's worth it. And my, my foot began to slip. He's saying, I, get, I became, came to a place where I, I kind of questioned it. I kind of questioned God. And uh, he picks that up in verse 3 of, of, of Psalm 73. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common, hum the, from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in, drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain. Notice that last line, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocent. So there you see where he's struggling. He's seeing the wicked prosper around him. And he's asking the question, is it worth living a good and moral life before God if it seems as though the wicked are, are prospering and the, and the people who love God and are trying to live a moral life are perishing? This doesn't seem like it. Now there's a few things we need to understand here. 
he's making a very blanket statement. He's saying the wicked never suffer, the wicked never go through trouble, they never suffer health. Well, we know that's not true. And that's really not the statement he's making. But he's saying, from my perspective, it seems like the wicked are doing a whole lot better than the righteous. That's essentially what he's saying. That's the point that he's making. And haven't you made that observation sometimes when you look around you and you see people who aren't living for God and they seem to be doing well and you're trying to live for God and it seems like life is pretty hard for you and you look at their lot and you say, man, it doesn't seem like I'm getting blessed, but it does seem like they are getting blessed. And they, they, the only time they use the word of Jesus or the only time they use the word of God is to curse. And you say, it doesn't seem like it's fair. The other thing that you see is it says that they, they, they oppress, they boast, and they're violent. Their evil imaginations have no limit. And I, we, we see this, don't we, in our society? One of the things that we understand about the human soul is this, that every person has a capacity within them to do terrible things, evil things. You could say, well, they were raised, they had a bad home, they had a bad environment, they lived in a bad neighborhood. But you know what? You could say that there's a lot of good people that have come out of those circumstances. They have risen to, to be good people. They, have, uh, they, are, they are blessing uh, their communities. Uh, though they had a hard upbringing, they had bad parents. Maybe they didn't even have parents. Uh, maybe they were raised in, in, in foster families. And, and they became, you know, maybe they were passed back and forth. But somehow or another, they were different. And the point I want you to see is this, that there is something within us it's easy for us to point the finger and say it's our environment or it's education or something like that. But we know that Scripture says that within our hearts, there's a depth that we can do terrible things. We can say awful things. And uh, we just have that capacity. So we can look at the wicked and say that. But we can look at our own hearts in the mirror and we can say the same could be true for us, right? The other thing he says about them is they aren't concerned about God. They live, they live as though God isn't around. There is no God. They live as though God doesn't intervene today in their lives or in anybody's life. And they can go and do whatever they want. They are not afraid of judgment. They are not concerned about judgment. They are just living their lives. They are just having a good time. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know people that kind of have that view of life? Just live, you know, kind of like uh, Solomon said, you know, Live, drink, and die, you know, for tomorrow we die. You know, in a sense, you know, live the life you want to live. Uh, but the psalmist goes on to say this. And he says, in contrast to, to the wicked, in verse 14, he says, All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Uh, so we see that the psalmist has tried to live a good life. He's tried to live a moral life. He's tried to live a life that's pleasing to God. And yet he feels... Every day is a challenge. Every day is kind of going against the current. Every day he feels like he's a being oppressed. He's being, he's being uh, uh, attacked. And the, he's, he's living this life, but it's hard and, and it's demanding. And, and the he, question he's asking is, why is it so hard for the righteous to live a good life? And the wicked just can go on. And you think about that for a minute. The wicked could care less what God thinks. They could care less what other people think. Their morals are kind of made up at the moment. And they're, moral, uh, they're, they're morally challenged, we would say. Where the, where the righteous basically say, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's, you know, I should do this, you know. So we have a moral compass that's very different. And many times it can be demanding. So the question I want to ask is, um, wh- how do you get a new perspective 
when, when you're struggling with this whole thing of wicked that are prospering and living a good life and not prospering, um, when, you, when you say um, you're struggling really essentially with the goodness of God. It's really what it comes down to, the goodness of God. So the question is, can you say God is good when life isn't? That's essentially what this psalm is all about. Can you say that God is good when life isn't? That's the essence of Psalm 73. And that's what the psalmist is wrestling with. Have you ever thought that question in your heart? Have you ever spoken it out loud to him? Have you ever mentioned it to somebody? Yeah, it's easy to love God when things are going well, but what about when things don't go well? Can you still love God? Can you still uh, say that God is good even when life isn't? Well, let me give you three things that are four things that this psalmist kind of we see in his struggle, this wrestling match that he has with God. The first thing is you need to remember that your actions will have an effect on others. It's interesting what he says. The question is, he said, I slipped, but I didn't fall. It's interesting in this psalm, he says, I slipped. I almost slipped, but I didn't fall. Uh, He doesn't say he didn't fall, but at the end you'll see that he didn't fall. But how did he do that? First, remember that your actions will affect others. In verse 15, he says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And essentially what he's saying here is this. I had to guard my actions and my words because I knew there was other people watching. I knew that my children were watching. I knew that my family was watching. I knew that my actions are not isolated events that only affect me. They affect everyone around me. Have you thought about that lately? Have you thought about that what you are doing and what you are saying isn't just affecting you. It is affecting those around you. It is affecting your children. It is affecting your wife or your husband. It is affecting your family, your friends. Your actions affect many more people than just you. And we're very quite short-sighted and quite selfish when we think our actions only affect us. And so what the psalmist said was, I was ready to slip, but then I remembered that my actions are going to affect others. You know, one of the things as a man, as a father, as a husband, that I really want to end my life with is I want my life, and I think you do too as a person, I think you want your life at the end to say, I may have slipped, but I never fell. I may have slipped. And if I fell, I repented and I got back up. Nobody wants to end their life and just say, well, they walked away from God. I mean, I've done funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. Some of the funerals I've done is for somebody who maybe was a believer. You know, I could think of a few people right now in my mind that they were followers of Jesus Christ and their end was so sad. Because they didn't think about what their actions were going to mean to their family, to their wife, to their children, to their husbands. And then you come to the funeral service and everybody knows they fell. They fell. It's a sad day indeed. So your words and actions don't just affect you. So look behind you and see that your actions will affect others. Guard your mouth. Remember we talked last weekend about muzzling your mouth sometimes you need to muzzle your mouth and you need to guard your actions consider your actions because somebody's always watching somebody's always watching number two so the psalmist says my foot was slipping but i didn't fall and one of the things that that i began that helped me gain traction in the midst of this 
was I remembered that my actions have an effect on the people around me. Secondly, I, uh, we need to seek him to help us in our confusion. Notice what he, what he did. This is verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. What does he mean, I entered the sanctuary of God? What does that mean? And then he says, then I understood their final destiny. Now, here's what I think is going on. I think the psalmist is saying, my foot almost slipped. And I remembered that my actions affect others, but I also entered into his sanctuary. And when I entered into his sanctuary, I was reminded of who God is. I was reminded of who God is. Now, it's so important to have a, a big view of God because I think our view of God is so small. I think our, God, our view of God is so limited. But he entered into the sanctuary and he got a new view of who God is. He got a picture of who God is. He got an understanding of that. And uh, what I found is this. When I get angry with God, when I, when I go, God, what are you doing? When I get frustrated, when I get discouraged, when I get down, what I realized was that I haven't been in the sanctuary of God. I haven't been with God. And, and you say, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? What does it mean to be in the sanctuary of God? What it means is this, that you're with God in his word, that you're with God in prayer, that you're with God with his people. And you know, here's what we tend to do, don't we? You say, well, I don't know because you haven't told me yet. <laughs> Tell me and then I'll say whether I agree with you. Okay, so here it is. In any human relationship, when you have a problem with somebody, you can do one of two things. Well, there's probably more that you can do, but there's at least two things you can do. The first one is you can have a problem with somebody and you can sit and sulk. You can make up scenarios. You can get a posse. You could say how bad this person is and what they might have said and what they might have intended to say. And you can build up this case against them, right? You can do that. But, and you can move further away from that person, right? The other thing you can do is you can go in and you can sit down with them. You can talk with them. You could share their, your heart with them. You can say, help me to understand what's going on here. You can try to clear the, the confusion. You can talk through those issues. not easy. It's hard. It's confrontational sometimes. It's difficult sometimes. But you know what? If you're ever going to move through conflict in any relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, children-parent relationship, or just a friendship, uh, you have to sit down with that person because you'll find that many times as you sit down and you work through it, and uh, if the two people are, you know, kind of, there's a desire to, to reconcile, you'll find that a lot of the scenarios that you could run are, are not good. So in the same way, when you're struggling with God, when you're worried about, you know, what's going on in your life, when you think God isn't fair and the wicked are, you know, are, are prospering and, and the good people who are living a good life are getting hammered, and you wonder if God is even good, what I find is sometimes people walk away from God which is the worst thing you could possibly do. You need to enter into the sanctuary. You need to sit down and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't like this. Help me to understand. You need to go right into the presence of God and you need to, rat, you know, we do it in human relationships. We should do it in our relationship with God. We shouldn't walk away from God. We should go into his sanctuary. So the psalmist says, my foot was sleeping, sl slipping. I was about ready to lose it. And instead of walking away from God, which is easy for people to do, but... I walked into God's presence. I sat down with God, and I got a new perspective. My perspective was changed. So 
you begin with the word, you begin with prayer, you begin with his people, and you sit in his presence. Don't walk away from God. Um, what I'm saying is that when you're confused, when you don't understand, when you're struggling with God, instead of walking away, because that's what the enemy wants you to do, make a move to God. Make a move to God, and you will find that you will get clarity and you will get help. So that's the second thing. Third thing we see is step back and gain an eternal perspective. Notice what he says here. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. Uh, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Complete. He's talking about the wicked. Completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as, as fantasies. So the writer is saying, I got a new perspective of the wicked and the evil. I got a new perspective that God has a long-term plan. He's, he's playing the long game. There, I'm looking at the short term. He's seeing the big picture. I'm looking at the snapshot. He's looking at the portrait. He sees everything. And he's, he's got a plan. You know, uh, many years, it seems, seems like it was recently, but it was many years ago that Steve Jobs uh, tried to recruit and successfully recruited John Scully uh, to become, uh, uh, to come to Apple Computers. And Scully was the president of Pepsi Corporation. And so, you know, I mean, Apple was not this big, huge company that it is now, and Pepsi was, was very big. So he was essentially going to Scully and saying, why don't you leave your very big company and your very powerful position and come to this little company that may or may not make it and, and be kind of, you know, in charge. And, you know, I mean, he's making a ton of money for Pepsi and he's got prestige, he's got everything and uh, he, he finally came to a place, you know, finally Jobs came to a place where he, 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 had to get, he had to get Scully to come. And he knew that he couldn't offer him the money, and he knew he couldn't offer him the prestige of the position, and he didn't, you know, he said, I'm offering him to come to a company that hasn't yet proved itself. And he finally said this. He said um, the famous line, he looked at uh, Scully and he said, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water or do you want a chance to change the world? Well, the rest is history because Scully left his job. He came to Apple and Apple has become a huge, now whether it's changing the world or not, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that, but Pepsi's still a pretty good product. <laughs> But my, my point is, what was Jobs doing at that point? He was helping Scully to see a different perspective, a bigger picture. And sometimes when we're in the middle of our crisis, in the middle of our struggle, all we can see is two inches ahead of us. And sometimes going to the Word of God and sitting before God, going into His sanctuary, helps us get a bigger, broader perspective of life. And we need that. We need that on a regular basis. We need somebody to step in and give us a bigger picture of our life. Because if you're just focused on these little incremental things that are going on in your life, you will find you're, you're going to get discouraged quite easily. Um, 
Here's a few things that you're going to find when you go into God's sanctuary. It's what the psalmist found. That the world is coming to an end. And everyone will be judged. And so when you see the wicked prospering, when you see the wicked acting as if there is no God, remember there is a day of judgment coming and that God is going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords and judgment is coming. What, what else you'll see is, and this is one that's not going to, you're not going to walk out. This next thing I'm going to tell you is not going to make you feel all good and tingly and nice and puppy dog tails and little flowers and all those things. You're not guaranteed a good life this side of heaven. Scripture doesn't say when you give your life to Christ and you try to live a good moral life before God that now you're going to have a good life in, in, in a sense without struggles, without suffering, without problems. In fact, it tells us the opposite. It says in the world you'll have tribulation. Jesus said that. So let's get over this idea that when we give our life to Jesus, now he owes us a good life. That was never part of the bargain. In fact, the last time I checked, he said, come follow me. Leave everything on the scrap heap, including your, your mother, your daughter, and your father, and your son. Jesus says, I'm going to come, and what I'm going to do is going to cause division in your closest relationships. Son against father, mother against daughter. And so there's going to be conflict. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have tribulation. That's going to happen. Um, the, the, the other thing the Scripture tells us that, yes, God has allowed sin, suffering, and evil for a time. But there is a time when that is all going to come to an end. And it hasn't come to an end yet. And so we see evil and we see suffering every day. We, we see pictures of Houston and we hear about Puerto Rico that still is struggling. I mean, they're, they're so far behind. It's going to take years and years and years. We also learn that God entered into our suffering and he suffered with us and he suffered for us. And that's the amazing story of the gospel that, that we don't suffer alone. We, do, we don't speak to someone when we're going through those difficult times, that doesn't understand, that doesn't get us, that some force or power above us, but it personally entered into our suffering, entered into our world, understands what we're going through. That's what the Scripture tells us. We need to have that perspective. You see, essentially, our present realities are not ultimate realities. And that's where we have to see a bigger picture. Have you ever done this where you've looked at uh, maybe, uh, it's hard to use it. Let's say you're, 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 you're looking straight on in a, on a building and you see it and you see just the, 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 the dimensions of the building faced on. But then you walk around a little bit to the corner and you see that that building goes way back. And, and it spreads out because it goes down and there's a hill. And you see a, different, you see a whole different perspective. Now, many times we're, we're stuck in that rut. We're just looking straight on. And when we go into the sanctuary and we allow God's word and God's uh, people and, and God through his word to speak to our heart and, and through prayer, what we'll do is God gives us the perspective where we peek around the corner. What is the book of Revelation? We get to peek around the corner of time. We get to see how God is going to bring this whole world that is rebelling against him back, 
back in and how judgment is going to come and how there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we get. We have to peek around the corner and see, oh, oh, he's doing that. We need that perspective sometimes. Here's the last thing. Ask the most important question. Notice what he says. This is a... Uh, you go, sorry, if you go uh, verse 22, he says this. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into, into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Now, there's two things, that, I'm going to read more, but there's two things that come out right away. First, he says, notice he says, I was like a beast when I entered your presence. What is he saying there? He said, man, was I, was I, was I assuming on you or what? Was I, was I jumping to conclusions or what? Did I, did I presume way too much? Sounds like Job, right? Where he says, oh, who am I to talk? What was I thinking? What was I saying? Let me just sit back and let me consider how great you are. And then, you know, the other phrase, he says, whom do I have but you? And it's almost like Peter. Remember last week when we talked about that? Where he says, will you leave me too? And Peter says, but Lord, to whom will we go? You offer the words of life. And the psalmist kind of says the same thing. Whom have I in heaven but you? And then he says, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, uh, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So, so sometimes, would you admit that when you're struggling, you see the, 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 the wicked are, 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 are prospering in the, and you're living a good life and you're not. It's easy for you to go into God's presence as a beast almost, you know, and not thinking what you're doing and, and I understand that, but, but there needs to be a point where you get a picture of the glory of God and you, you repent and you say, man, I just, I got to remember what Paul says in Romans. He says, I'm not the potter, I'm the clay. And he gets to form me any way he wants. And if you struggle with that, you're struggling with the majesty and the providence and the power and, and well, you're struggling with Almighty God. But when we enter the sanctuary, we see Jesus as our offering. We see the one who made peace with God for us. We see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see that God has held nothing back from us. In fact, He has given us His beloved Son for our salvation. We are rich. We are blessed. God has given us more than we could ever dream of, more than we could ever express. We know that we are loved because He who would give His own Son for us must truly love us. If he didn't hold his son back, what could he possibly be holding back? In 1851, there was an English missionary named Alan uh, Gardner, and he was on a ship headed uh, on, on his way to South America. So he was headed to, to South Africa, but the ship instead wrecked on some islands off the coast of South, uh, uh, South America. Um, he died there. And uh, many uh, of, of the people who were on the ship, mo everyone on the ship ultimately died. He lived there, and, and there were a number of survivors that lived on this island. Eventually, though, they all died, and they all died seemingly painful, terrible uh, death because there was no food. So they died of hunger, malnutrition, and thirst. 
you would say everything could have went wrong for him. He never got, to, remember, this man was going on a mission field. He was living a good life. He was, he was giving his life to God in, in one of the most ultimate ways he could. He died far away from his family. And he prayed often because we have a journal. Oh, Lord, rescue me. But no one ever came to rescue him. You say, well, wait a minute. He's a missionary. He's serving God. He's crying out a very honest prayer. God, rescue me. But no one ever came to rescue him. Later, his body was found. And they found a journal next to his body. The last thing he wrote in his journal was Psalm 3410. This is what that verse says. Psalm 3410. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. This is a verse that he wrote in his journal while he was starving, while he was dying of thirst. This is the verse he wrote. And then the very last line that he wrote on his journal before he died was this. This is the last line that he wrote that is recorded. He had lost the strength to write anything other than this. And he wrote this. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. What? What? He didn't write, God, what are you doing to me? I'm going to serve you in South Africa. How could you let this happen? How could you not rescue me? What's your plan? Instead, he writes, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. How is this possible? You know, Job said something similar. In the book of Job, chapter 13, verse 15, it says this. Though he slay me, speaking of God, Job is talking about God. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Only as we enter into his sanctuary, only as we see his eternal plan, only as we see Jesus hanging for us, taking our place, only then can we say, no matter what life brings, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God for me. I am overwhelmed. The psalmist has one last thing to say. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Sometimes we don't get those answers. Sometimes we don't get rescued. And it's at those times that we have to just look to God and say, God, I don't understand this. I absolutely don't like it. And I'm struggling right now. And we have to enter the sanctuary. We have to hear his word. We have to pray to him. Pray our fears, pray our struggles, pray our, our frustrations, our confusion to God. We pray it out to Him. Don't walk away from God. Go into His presence and allow Him to speak to your spirit. Allow Him to fill your soul. Allow Him to rescue you. Allow yourself 
to be overwhelmed with his goodness, even when you're not experiencing it. Only God can do that in your heart. Only God can do that in your heart. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, this isn't something that we can do on our own. It is only as we see Jesus, who was abandoned for us, who was overwhelmed with life, who had evil all around him, who was left for dead. Only then can we be overwhelmed with your goodness. Only then, as we enter into your sanctuary, can we get a new perspective. Only then can we hold to the goodness of God, even when life is not good. Give us the help that we need, Father. Give us the perspective we need. Give us the friends we need. Give us your word that we need. Give us whatever we need, Father. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.